all for coming out, you know? That wouldn't be, well, you know, it would just be kind of sad without you here, right? Um, so tonight, man, we're going to, like, these final three messages, we're going to be heavy hitting. Um, and I'm excited um, to delve into. The, tonight is easily one of my favorite messages. Because we're talking about the end of sin tonight. And everything, and everything that I do, whenever we're talking about prophecy, I, I pray that we can find the gospel in it. That, that tonight's not just about the facts, the dates, the times. But I pray that we're going to see an incredible picture of God's love tonight when we study uh, the book of Daniel as we continue. So let's pray again as we get started. And then we will dive right into the Word of God tonight uh, as we begin. Father God, I just want to thank you so much that you have brought us thus far, that you have brought us to this point, entering into your Sabbath rest. Lord, as we study Daniel chapter 7 tonight and the four beasts, and as we discuss your plan for bringing an end to sin, Lord, I pray that your word will speak powerfully. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. How many of you guys have ever been troubled about the future? Well, I'm sure we all have. Maybe it's because of financial circumstances. Maybe it's because a loved one is struggling with their health. Maybe we don't know what the next few months hold, but I'm sure all of us at one point or another have been troubled for the future. As we saw Wednesday night, King Nebuchadnezzar was troubled about his future and about the future of his empire. He had received a troubling dream about the, about the future that he couldn't remember. It was very problematic. Well, we learned that he called upon the astrologers, the wise men, those who practice some of the dark arts, and I guess I hit backwards. Um, mm -hmm. Anyways, at the end of the story, if we pick up towards the end of Daniel chapter 2, Daniel reveals that he serves the living and true God. All the other men, they tried to come before King Nebuchadnezzar with flattery and you know, it wasn't necessarily all negative, but um, Daniel was a humble man. He was different. And we come to the end of the chapter after King Nebuchadnezzar has come face to face with the reality that his kingdom is not going to last forever, but that rather one day soon it's actually going to come to an end. And that the only kingdom that will last forever is the kingdom of the Most High God. Amen. Verse 47 of Daniel chapter 2, we read, Then the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing that thou couldst reveal this thing. And from this point on, Daniel is set the right hand of the king. He's promoted and set over the provinces of Babylon. And Daniel stands as a beacon of integrity throughout his entire time. In fact, he's one of the rare characters in the Bible where we find no fault in him. Tonight, we're going to see as we take this journey that the Bible is its own interpreter. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he acknowledges that God is a God of gods, but it hadn't become personal for him yet. If you were to read on and study Daniel chapter 3, we kind of know the story well, right? You know, some wise men, they come back to him and they kind of convince him and he kind of likes this idea. I'm going to make an image all of gold, right? Because my kingdom will last forever. And so he makes this image all of gold, and it's quite a magnificent structure. I mean, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to witness this, this incredible image. But Daniel and his three friends, they're, 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 they're there that day. We don't know where Daniel is, but 
Uh, many believe that Daniel was not there because the king knew he was not going to bow down. But now he's testing his friends. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there that day when the command is given to bow down when you hear the music and the music plays. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the only three standing. Somebody notices it, they point it out, and they say, hey, king, you've got a problem. You've got these three Hebrew boys that will not bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar is like, okay, you know, these are men that were promoted. At the end of chapter 2, if you read, not only was Daniel promoted, but Daniel asked for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be promoted into higher positions of leadership. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they weren't nobodies. These were leaders. And so Nebuchadnezzar, he's kind of in a pickle, like, you know, I've got prominent leaders here. It would be best if they just bowed down, conformed, and went with the program. So he calls them forward. And as he calls them forward, he tries to reason with them. But they tell him, you know, we're not going to bow down. We're not afraid of death. Our God is able to save us. And if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship your image. And so they find themselves in the fiery furnace, and yet in the midst of that fiery trial, Christ was standing there. They didn't know what the future held. All they had to hold on to was their faith in God. And they had seen God prove himself faithful to them already more than once. But you know what's also true about this story? Just like in Daniel chapter 1, when Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood faithful, it would be a fair argument to say that that day there were other Jews and Hebrew leaders that bowed down. They took the easy route to save their temporal life. And as we're entering into this weekend where liberty is most definitely on the line at the end of time, the Bible is very clear when we delve deep into its pages that there is coming a point very near in earth's history where the governments of this world will unite with a false religious system, which we will identify tonight. And the whole goal will be coerce to coerce and force us to bow down to another image. And just like in the days of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there will be some of us who will stand courageous and firm to the end, trusting in our God who is mighty to be saved. And then there will be others of us, hopefully not any of us here tonight, but the reality is it's possible. There will be others of us who will say, you know what? God doesn't want any harm to come to me. We'll be able to find a way to justify it, and we will take the easy way out. Bible prophecy is powerful stuff, and tonight we're going to see that the Bible is its own interpreter. Join me in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. You know, right now we live in a world where people are, are struggling. Almost 10 million U.S. adults are seriously thought about committing suicide in 2015. In 2014, 26% of 16 through 24-year-old women reporting having self-harm at some point. Self-injury and suicide cost the U.S. $69 billion, according to the U.S. So we're living in an age where there is a mental health crisis like never before. And these things are only being further promoted by the fact that we are legalizing every toxic substance for people to put in their body and make themselves more and more mentally unstable. It's not a coincidence that this is happening at the end of time. Daniel chapter 1 is where we begin tonight. And we're going to learn about a lion. Daniel chapter 7. I didn't mean to say Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1. Here we go. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, not Belteshazzar, but Belshazzar, Daniel had a dream and a vision upon his head, in his head, upon his, <laughs> upon his bed. 
Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spoke and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea and the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Okay, so four great beasts come up from the sea, diverse one from another. The lion, the bear, the leopard, and the last dreadful beast. The first, verse 4, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. And a man's heart was given unto it. The first beast that we come to is the lion. And it's interesting, right? What we're going to find is the Bible is its own interpreter. I'm going to keep repeating that. And the Bible is going to expand and expound upon what it's already given us in Daniel chapter 2. We have this simple image where God tells the king, you are this head of gold, but after you shall arise another kingdom, represented by the chests and arms of silver. Historically, we know without a shadow of a doubt which kingdom came and conquered Babylon. So here we come to this first beast, the lion. And we're going to find that this first beast is actually representative of Babylon. It's interesting to note Babylon's Ishtar gate. What do you notice there? A lion with wings. I actually had the privilege of seeing this in person. They've reconstructed it. They actually found the Ishtar Gate, and it's reconstructed in the Berlin Museum. So you can see that this is actually the authentic uh, Berlin Gate. It's not as glamorous and shiny and as perfect as it must have been in the days of King Nebuchadnezzar. But here it is. A lion with wings. It's not an accident that God chose to use a lion with wings. Daniel wouldn't have been fooled. He would have understood exactly which kingdom we were talking about. Now, we also learned that Daniel knew about the prophet Jeremiah because Jeremiah was sending letters to Babylon. And Jeremiah would write in Jeremiah 50 and verse 17, Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First the king of Assyria devoured him. Now at last this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Okay? Lions have driven away. So here we see again, in relation to the king of Assyria and Nebuchadnezzar, that a lion is used to represent the way that they have destroyed them. My sheep have been scattered, driven away by lions. Now historically, we can look here tonight, and we can see the great expanse of the Babylonian Empire. It was quite a powerful nation the wealthiest that this world has ever seen. But as we learned, Babylon was not going to last forever. Babylon would not remain in power, but rather there would become another king. And Isaiah, the prophet, would write about this in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose armors of kings to open the, before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden riches of the secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God. Of Israel. So Cyrus is predicted in the Bible ahead of time to carry out some great conquest. In fact, we read here, you can see on this in the picture there, that's the Cyrus cylinder, where Cyrus actually depicts himself the very battle and the fall of Babylon, just as God had told beforehand that Cyrus would do. Cyrus, of course, was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire, which was this merger of two empires. And Cyrus is the one who conquers 
Babylon. And if you know history, what they did is they simply diverted the river, kind of pulled it in a lake, and they marched right in underneath the, uh, underneath the city, breaking those iron bars, just as the Bible said. There was nothing that could stop Cyrus from this conquest. And so we come to this second beast. Daniel 7 and verse 5, And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise and devour much flesh. Arise and devour much flesh. Just as Babylon wasn't to last forever, so Medo-Persia wasn't to last forever. The three ribs that are represented... They actually represent something as it's standing on its side. You see here the map of the Persian Empire. You're going to notice that now this empire has actually grown. Not only has it devoured and, and conquered all that Babylon once reigned, but now we're starting to spread all the way into Greece almost and all the way over into India. Okay? Now, the three ribs represented the three major kingdoms that it conquered, namely Egypt, Lydia, and the great empire of Babylon. Okay, so we're learning a little bit about history tonight. Medo-Persia was a very powerful kingdom, but it too would fall. It would not stand the test of time. There would be another kingdom that would follow. Daniel 7 and verse 6, After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and the beast also had four heads. And dominion was given to it. Okay, so we have this leopard-like beast with four wings and four heads. Quite an interesting beast. Why all these details? Well, Alexander the Great, perhaps one of the most famous generals ever to be recorded in the annuals of history. Alexander the Great conquered all of this land. All of this land. In 13 years. 13 years. So it is very fitting that the Bible uses a leopard, the fastest land mammal, to describe the Greek Empire. There's no accidents with the Bible. The incredible depth and detail upon which God uses to describe things in the prophetic pages is beyond human comprehension. The Bible also adds four wings to emphasize the fact that this kingdom would come to power rapidly. But what about the foreheads? The other beasts in that foreheads. Why does this one have four heads? Well, one would assume, right? Alexander was such a mighty conquering general. 13 years to conquer all of this. Like, that's a lot of land. He didn't have tanks. He didn't have planes. He didn't have battleships. He conquered all of this in 13 years. Well, as history records, though we would assume he would have lived a long and prosperous life after his great conquests, he, well, shortly after his great victories, became very sick and died in the city of Babylon. After Alexander the Great died, his generals began to fight over the empire. All of this. Out of their bloody struggle, there emerged four different kingdoms of the Greek empire represented by the four different heads of the leopard. Seleucus took Asia. Um, trying to see if I have all these names on there. But he, uh, he took um, Asia from Phrygia to India. Okay, So um, I don't see Phrygia on there. Um, then... Western Asia, Asia Minor and Thrace fell to Lysimachus. Ptolemy became king of Egypt. And then the last one, Greece and Macedonia, fell to, this was actually the smallest, it fell to Cassander, who established himself on the throne there. So in Daniel chapter 7, we see the Bible is now building and expounding upon the information it has already given us in Daniel 2. Daniel chapter 2 helped us identify the kingdoms, but now the Bible is giving us more details. 
It is saying not only would the Greek Empire arise, but then it predicts that there would be four divisions of this kingdom. It is saying not only would the Medo-Persian Empire conquer Babylon, but it would conquer in this specific way. The Bible shows us Cyrus would be the king. They're going to conquer three different major kingdoms. So now we come down to the last beast, the dreadful beast, the Roman Empire. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth that devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with, its, the, with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And we talked about this the other night. Rome was a massive, massive empire. Rome ruled with an iron fist. There's a reason, there's a reason that we say all roads lead to Rome. Rome was an incredibly massive kingdom. Now, let's review for just a moment the kingdoms. Okay? We have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. And then we're going to learn a little bit about this little horn fellow tonight. This little horn fellow begins to emerge after the fall of Rome. Now, it doesn't completely come to power until the year 538, but we'll learn a little bit more about this. The little horn is the last piece of information that we learned tonight. Now, remember, when we ended last Wednesday, we talked about the potter's clay or the miry clay mixed with iron. Iron obviously represented the government and empire of Rome. We also saw that in the Bible, in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 1 through 6, that God's people in more than one instance are represented as the potter's clay. Okay? So what we're seeing here down at the feet of iron and clay, we're getting the idea that there's going to be some sort of mixture of religious authority with civil authority. Something that God does not desire because God alone is sovereign over his people. The only time a theocracy worked was when God was in charge. When man tries to make a theocratical government, it's an absolute failure because man was never given the right to tell others how and when to worship and how they must be saved. The Bible is the only authority that has the right to tell men how they are to be saved. Daniel 7 and verse 8 divided Rome. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now remember I told you tonight the Bible is going to be its own interpreter. So when we read in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24, And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall rise. Okay, So we're talking about ten kings or ten kingdoms. When Rome divided, it split in the Western Empire into ten different kingdoms. Here's a map of what that looked like. I'll give you the names here in just a second. Okay? On the board, you have the Anglo-Saxons, Saxons, which were the English, the Franks, the French, the Visigoths, the Spanish, the Suevi, the Portuguese, the Burgundies, the Swiss, the Alemanni, the Germans, the Lombards, the Italians, and then we get down to these last three, which are extinct, no longer existent in the world today, the Ostrogoths, the Heruli, and the Vandals. Okay? Now, the Vandals and the Huruli are the last. No, no, no. They're the first to go. They're the first to go. And then we come down to the Ostrogoths. These three kingdoms, the Ostrogoths, the Vandals, and the Huruli, were all uprooted by the little horn power as it came into existence. Okay? Now, what is this little horn? 
there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. Well, what are the identifying characteristics of the little horn? Well, let's look. I'm going to put these on the screen. Number one, different from all the rest. We already read that, right? Comes up amidst the ten horns. Three are uprooted before it. It makes war with the saints. Speaks great things against the Most High. It wears out the saints. It thinks to change chimes and laws. It reigns for a time, time, and half a time. Okay? Well, let's just see this for ourselves. Okay? I, verse 21 of Daniel chapter 7, beheld the same horn, made war with the saints, and prevailed against them. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, verse 24, and he shall be diverse or different from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Okay, so he's going to take down three kingdoms. And he shall speak great words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time, times, and dividing of times, or half a time. Okay? So here we are. Here's all the characteristics that we've read. Well, when we study this in history, truly there is only one option. There's absolutely only one option. The little horn equals the papacy. Okay? The little horn is the papacy. Now, how do we know this? Well, one of the key characteristics of the little horn is the fact that it would reign for a time, times, and half a time, okay? Well, we've got to figure this out. Let's do some Bible math tonight. Now, I already referenced some of these verses the other night, but now we're going to see them on the screen. It's in your notes. You might want to write down the significance of these verses, okay? Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6, I have appointed thee each day for a year. Numbers 14, 34, after the number of the days in which you search the land, even 40 days, each day for a year, okay? So, we remember, right, the children of Israel, they failed to go into the promised land. They searched the promised land, though, for 40 days, and God says, well, for every day that you search the land, you're going to have to live in the wilderness for a year. Then Ezekiel was dealing with something prophetic, and he was told, I have appointed thee each day for a year. A day was representing a year, okay? So we're going to see that this day-to-year principle applies to Bible prophecy, okay? So, let's keep going. How many days did the Jewish calendar include? That's kind of an important piece of information, because Daniel is a Jew, and God's chosen people during this time in the Bible were the Jews, okay? Now, here's an interesting piece of research that I stumbled across. Administrators in ancient Judah used Semitic 30-day months and a 360-day year alongside other annual frameworks, okay? You can see uh, the reference. This was actually written in 2021, just some fresh research. Now, this has been known for a long time that the Jews operated off of a 360-day calendar, okay? But let's do some Bible math tonight, okay? So the beast power, if you look in 7, the little horn power, if you look in Daniel 7 and verse 25, it was going to reign for a time, times, and half a time, okay? So we know here that 360 days equals, well, we know that the Jewish calendar was 360 days, and a time in the Jewish understanding and in the original Hebrew, they used there equaled a year. When you say times, it was two years, and half a time, or dividing of time, half a year. Okay? So, we're going to see this. 360 years plus 720 plus 180. Well, what does this all equal? 1260 years. Now, what's interesting about this is the Bible actually uses this number in relation to this exact same time span and other places. There's actually three ways this number appears in the Bible. Times, times and half a time, 
42 months, which equals 1260 days, and the third time is literally 1260 days. It actually uses it in that way. Okay? So it's not an accident that we would come to this understanding. This is actual biblical understanding. Okay? So 1260 years. If you want the references, this number is used seven times in the Bible. And I can show you all the different references if you want to ask me for that later. Um, but 1260 years. Okay? Well, when was this time span? Well, look here. Um, in 538, General Belsarius of the Eastern Roman Empire delivers Rome from the siege of the Ostrogoths. Remember, I said they were the last ones to get wiped out. The Ostrogoths are actually sieging Rome. It looks like they have the upper hand, and all of a sudden, General Belsarius from the Eastern Roman Empire comes in, wipes out the Ostrogoths, and leaves Rome under the control of the Bishop of Rome the head of the papacy, the Pope. So 538 begins this timeline of 1260 years. And if we go 1260 years from 538 AD, we come to 1798 AD. Well, what happens? Okay, we know that the Bible says it's going to be given power over the saints of the Most High for a time, times, and half a time, which all adds up to 1260 years. Well, when we come to 1798, we're coming to the end of the French Revolution. Napoleon is on the march, and he sends his general Berthier down to Rome, and he takes Pope Pius VI captive as prisoner of the war, thus ending the dominant position that the church had held throughout the Middle Ages, which had become known as the Dark Ages. Now, you have to understand that the Dark Ages were dark for many reasons, okay? Obviously, we have religious oppression and persecution. If you went against the norm of that day, you were persecuted. For example, today, in secular public schools, when you're in science class, they are going to pull up a figure named Galileo. Galileo becomes the first scientist to discover that the Earth is round. It's not flat. The church was teaching that it was flat. Galileo is actually thrown in prison because he's going against the church. Now, the public school system says, see, this is proof that the Bible and Christians are out of harmony with science. When they failed to admit that Galileo came to those conclusions because he was a Christian. And he read that the earth is round, not flat, that God sits above the circle of the earth. And Galileo came to these conclusions through some inventions, but he himself was actually a Christian. He was a Protestant. Okay? So he was persecuted because of scientific discovery. There were others that were burned at the stake. Huss and Jerome in the 14th century burned at the stake because they started to teach that salvation was through Jesus Christ alone. During the Dark Ages, there's little improvement in the quality of life because the Dark Ages didn't just affect religion, but it also affected scientific advancement. It's one of the great lies that they tell you today that scientific advancement came about because of evolution. Isaac Newton, another famous scientist, he was a Protestant. He actually knew that the little horn power was the papacy. He knew that the beast of Daniel and Revelation was the papacy. He was a student of prophecy, and he's the one who invents calculus, discovers gravity. All this advancement came actually because people got back to the Word of God, and it gave them freedom from the darkness which prevailed. So the Dark Ages was a very dark time, and it ended in France's revolt, which was the total opposite, where they completely turned against God, the church, and everything, and it becomes a very secular society and a very despicable society. Now, the papacy was not only to reign for 1260 years, but it would also think to change times and laws. Okay? We read this here. He shall speak great words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and dividing of times. Okay, what two laws did he change? Well, he changes the commandment, the second commandment, right? Uh, no graven images. If you've ever been to the Vatican, I unfortunately have. It was the most sickening experience that I've ever had. But it's meant to wow you. 
Like, I was just listening to this the other day. Some commentators, they were like, man, like, Rome truly never fell because all the money of the Roman Empire is in the Vatican. And they were just talking about how sick this place is and yet how it just, it's meant to enamor you. You walk in Peter, St. Peter's Basilica and it's like, I mean, the ornate intricate architecture, the gold, the images. But there's no God in it. I mean, you'll see paintings and pictures of the Bible. But I remember that contrast because I was on a Reformation tour for my church history credit that I took. And we went from the Vatican all the way to the Waldensian Valley. You walk in the Waldensian church and right in the center of the church is a Bible. I went through all the Vatican. I couldn't find a Bible. I could find pictures of the Bible. You, you know, you go through the Sistine Chapel. So it does away with idol worship. In fact, this was how it blurred the lines of everything. Because Peter, who everyone goes to kiss if you're a devout Catholic, was actually the god Jupiter. So they begin to blur the lines. They keep image worshiping because they had to draw in the pagans and compromise. So they say, you know what, it's not too bad to worship relics and images. So they throw out commandment number two. Well, what about commandment number four, the Sabbath? Well, let's just take it from their own words. We heard a lot from other denominations after our message on the Sabbath last Sabbath, but now let's listen a little bit more to the papacy themselves. From the mouth of the beast, the little horn, Cardinal James Given, you may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. Questions for the papacy. Which is the Sabbath day? Saturday is the Sabbath day. Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? We observe Sunday instead of Saturday because the Catholic Church and the Council of Laodicea, A.D. 336. You realize that they're claiming all the way back to A.D. 336. Transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. This is the convert's catechism. This is what they give out to Catholic converts. Okay? The Church of God has thought it well to transfer the celebration of the observance of Sabbath to Sunday. Now we've learned, right? This is a little bit of review. The prophet Balaam, a bad prophet, went against the Lord, but the Lord said, you're going to have to say everything that I say. And when he opened his mouth, he said, I have received commandment to bless. What he has blessed, I cannot reverse. What did we learn from that? All right, what God has blessed, can any man change it? No. So it doesn't matter what they thought well to do. It doesn't matter that they said, you know what, we're going to transfer the celebration of the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Man has no power, no authority to do this. Exodus 31, 13, Speak also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbath you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Ezekiel 20 and verse 19 through 20, I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and hallow my Sabbaths and, you, and they shall be a sign between you, me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. That you may know I am the Lord, your God. I know God told us, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Daniel chapter 7 was written long before the conclusion of the events in this chapter. 
Now, there's still a portion of Daniel chapter 7 that's left to be fulfilled. Daniel 7 isn't completely finished. Daniel 7 actually talks about something called the judgment. Now, we've talked a little bit about the judgment during the series. But Daniel 7, verse 9 and 10 says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancients of days did sit, whose garments was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him, and thousands and thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the judgment was set, and the books were open. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the ancients of days, and they brought him near before him. Daniel chapter 7 has this continued repeated theme, this chiastic structure where it goes, four beasts, the little horn, and then judgment. And it repeats this three times in Daniel chapter 7. The conclusion of Daniel chapter 7 has not yet been finished. The judgment has not been finished. But remember I told you tonight that God has a plan to bring an end to sin. And God is saying to each one of us tonight, I am the Lord, there is no other God. I am the one who can tell you the end from the beginning, and I actually care about you. And I'm making an invitation for you to join my kingdom. I, the King of kings, the one who truly rules, tell you to come before my throne. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the great invitation of the Bible. Jesus paid it all. And he says, I invite you to come boldly before my throne because I want to help you. And that's the best invitation that any of us could have because we have to appear before that throne, my friends. The question is, will you appear before that throne washed in the blood of Christ and robed with His robe of righteousness? Or will we appear in our own filthy garments? Daniel chapter 7 brings us face to face with the reality that there is a judgment. And it brings us face to face with the reality that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sins. To cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. The Bible also says in Proverbs 28 verse 13 that he that covereth his sins shall not prosper, right? It's not a wise thing to try and cover up your sins and act like it's okay. It's not a wise thing to say, you know what? It's okay for me to do this. When God has said it is not, you could fill in the blanks. It's okay for me to tell a little lie here. It's okay to not totally render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and cheat here on the taxes. It's okay to waste time on mindless entertainment. It's okay to partake of this substance. It's not that bad. It, you know, it helps me. It's okay to be prideful. It's okay to hate my neighbor. Is it? Because that's not what the Bible says. And the standard that is set before us is not any human standard, but it is Christ our righteousness. And he says, I've paid the price. Don't cover up your sins. You're not going to prosper because I died for those sins so that I could take the shame of the struggle that you face. Whoever confesses and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That's the God who says, he says, look, look, just, just simply own up to it. And I will be merciful. You know what's radical about this picture? Night one, we began looking at the question, is God responsible for evil? 
And as we looked at that question, is God responsible for evil? We saw a God who literally chose to take on every single curse of sin. We saw a God who said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to die for you. I'm going to take your nakedness and your shame and I'm going to die on the cross. And I'm going to wear that crown of thorns and experience more pain than a woman in childbirth. You guys have caused me so much pain, but I'm going to take that pain, that blame, and all that shame. And the best part about this, this is what gets me hope in the book of Daniel. This chapter, verse 26. Oh, I skipped ahead. Verse 26, but the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion. Speaking of the beast power, which is really activated and empowered by the devil. He says, they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it unto the end. Then we come to verse 27. Notice this. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, to give context to this, we must go back to verse 14 of Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man has just appeared before the Ancient of Days. He is saying, my blood is enough for Tony. My blood is enough for Jason, for Misty. My blood has paid the price for Travis and Anna, for Pastor Bailey, for Millie, for Rachel, for Don and Christy. His blood is enough. And in the day of judgment, that's what matters. Have you been washed by the blood of Christ? Have you allowed him to cleanse you from your sin? We read verse 14, the Son of Man, it says that there was given him dominion, glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, land, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. When we come to the conclusion of the chapter, that kingdom is given to the saints of the Most High. Now this should give each one of us, to me it gives me chills every time I think about this, like literally right now. When Adam sinned, what did he forfeit? Dominion. He forfeited dominion. And when all is said and done, Daniel chapter 7 is telling us that after Christ died on the cross, he actually had the right to claim earth again. It's not that God ever lost control, but there was a temporary time where the devil's like, I'm the rightful ruler. I've taken Adam's dominion. And the cross says, no, you are no longer the ruler. And Christ takes that dominion back. But the end of the story is, after 6,000 some odd years of sin, when the redeemed stand with Jesus again, and we are finally home. Jesus says, I'm going to give you back that dominion that you lost. What a loving and merciful God. I mean, it doesn't, it humanly doesn't make sense. But God says, I love you so much that I'm going to restore you to the position you once held. And you're going to continue to rise higher through my power and glory. James chapter 2, verse 11 and 12 tells us we're going to be judged by that perfect law of liberty. And one day soon, there will be some sheep and goats. And God's going to make a distinguishing difference between these sheep and goats. The sheep understood the true heart of service and they served because they loved. They weren't serving for recognition or for brownie points, but they were just serving because their heart had been changed. And the goats, they professed to be a follower, but they didn't really have the heart of service. They didn't understand the power of the blood of Christ, which is mighty to save. My friends, would you be free from the burden of sin? Whew. There is power in the blood still today. Let's sing our closing song. Power in the blood. 294. Hymn number 294.
power in the blood. Had an appeal tonight. It is, is, is it your desire to follow Jesus wherever he leads and allow the Bible to be the basis for your faith in him? If that's your desire, I ask you to come forward. And as we talked about tonight, right, we're looking at the judgment at the end of time, right? That's a very specific appeal. Because Jesus says, my blood is enough. Like, this is what he presents on our behalf. And the Bible says, don't cover your sins because you're not going to prosper. But confess them. Because there's power in the blood. That's the invitation. What mankind lost, Jesus, he redeemed all of it. Literally all of it. And he wants to give it back to you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we are near even at the door, and Jesus is coming. And as your people, Lord, we want to be ready. And Lord, tonight we've seen that you accurately predicted several thousand years of this earth's history and how it would affect your people. And at the end of the story, we see that there is a judgment and that Christ appears on our behalf and he receives that dominion which we forfeited. But he doesn't keep it for himself. His plan, his desire is to give it to the saints of the Most High who have confessed and forsaken their sins through his power. And so, Lord, tonight we're standing here for those of us who have come forward desiring to follow you wherever you should lead us and make your word the the basis and foundation of our faith. Lord, I just pray that you would Strengthen those who have responded to the appeal tonight. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare us for this Sabbath rest. Lord, we've entered into your rest, and tomorrow we're going to finish off with two more thoughts from your word. And we just ask that you would prepare our hearts in advance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.